The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in free. Two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, Zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this very special edition of UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI viral immunologist, Dr. Ilham Masoudi. One of the things that makes this show so special is that because for the first time in over a year, my guest and I are meeting face-to-face. In fact, we're on campus at the patio tables in front of Starbucks, very close to the Science Library. It's a beautiful, breezy day, and we're both very grateful to have our COVID vaccine. Professor Masoudi, welcome to UCI Conversations. How are you today? I'm doing great. And I am so glad to finally meet you in person. <laughs> Fantastic. Me too. Well, first of all, ladies and gentlemen, you know, 13 months ago, Ilham appeared on my show. At the time, there was a lot of fear in the air because, you know, but Southern California had not had any surges yet, but we didn't know what was going to happen. And then the rest is history. But after many bumps in the road and false starts, what a difference a year makes. Our scientists are true heroes. Uh, the vaccine is working wonderfully. Can you please give us your thoughts and perspective of where we came from and where we're at? Yeah, um, it's been kind of a roller coaster. <laughs> and it's hard to believe that it's only been 13 months since we last spoke. So much has happened, and yet at the same time, it feels like yesterday that we had this conversation. But yes, uh, as you said, it's just it's amazing to think that uh, today, 50% of adults have had at least one vaccine. It's gotten emergency use authorization for use in kids over the age of 12. So not only are the adults getting vaccinated, but also kids are now getting vaccinated. And I, for one, am waiting on pins and needles for the results of the trials in the six months to 12 year olds, because that's where both of my kids are. And the minute that that becomes available, I am rushing them to their pediatrician office and getting them vaccinated. So it's it's exciting to go from, you know, early days of clinical trials to almost half the adult population getting at least half of their dose vaccinated. So it's it's amazing. It's it's absolutely amazing, and it's a great triumph for science and a great triumph for for, for all of us at this point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For humanity. Right. Yeah. Did you foresee that the mRNA vaccine would, would be, does that surprise you at all? Or did you think like, yeah. you, 
No, it's it's so the technology had been around for a while and it had some really great successes with some of the earlier preclinical trials for um, Zika, for example. Um, so this the mRNA technology was used in some really great studies some, during this Zika epidemic, and the results were very compelling. The vaccines were highly immunogenic. Yes, I uh, on some level I think it's amazing that this piece of mRNA can survive long enough to get into a cell to make the protein of interest, um, to get into the right cells to make this protein so that it can be processed and then presented to our T cells that then get activated and help the B cells make antibodies. And when we think about the ability of an mRNA molecule to be stable and survive long enough to turn this whole process on, I, I am amazed. I am very happy to see that this technology has you know, proven to be more successful than beyond my wildest dreams, actually. But I think the data leading up to this was pretty solid. So it's, it's you know, in some level, it's really a great surprise, but on another level, you can see all the steps that have led to this day um, and all the pieces of data that have made sure that we do arrive successfully at this moment. If this had been three years ago, would we have seen the mRNA vaccine this fast? You, you yes, 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 oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, the technology was there. It just, the, the right, unfortunately, for lack of better words, but the, the, the right outbreak and urgency had not been there for it to be this successful, right? Gotcha. Um, so I think mRNA vaccines probably have a higher chance of being wonderfully successful against viruses that have like, that are also have an RNA genome, a positive strand RNA genome, which is very similar to what the mRNA vaccine is, is based on. So I think it was just the right, the right set of circumstances, that the right things aligned to make this such a great success. Had you worked in that area? Is that your area? No. no, no, it's, yeah, I don't really work on vaccines. I'm mostly interested in responses to viral infections and what makes them successful and not successful. But this is an area that I follow very closely. And so I was aware of, of the studies that, that had used the mRNA technology for vaccines against Zika, for instance. You, can you define, maybe you just referred to it, what is a viral immunologist? So a viral immunologist... And that's what you do, I mean, right? Yeah, yes, yes. And I guess my definition of it is somebody who studies how our immune system responds to a viral infection and what makes that immune Which response is... successful or not successful and how that response is shaped by things like age or nutritional status or existing comorbidities. And, um, it's a big umbrella term. <laughs> and COVID falls directly oh, yeah, in line. Yes. Yes, yeah, so my work has encompassed the immune response to Ebola virus, to Marburg virus, mechanisms of vaccine protection against those diseases, yellow fever, chikungunya. I've worked on a lot of emerging viral diseases over the last few years. And then some other not so scary diseases like chicken pox. And Where does COVID-19 fall in the spectrum? Was it very similar to like Ebola or, or, or no, they're all kind of distinct and different. So um, I would say one of the big differences between SARS-CoV-2 and say uh, Ebola is that Ebola has a mortality rate that's 40 to 100% no matter what. 
Right? With SARS-CoV-2, we know that about 80% of the individuals either have an asymptomatic or very mild disease. And it's very, the, the disease severity is tightly linked to age and the presence of comorbidities like diabetes, obesity, hypertension. Um, Ebola does not discriminate. The, the mortality is the mortality rate, whether you're a healthy 20-year-old or an 80-year-old, um, which makes it a lot scarier, of course. Um, you know, the reason why, I think we touched upon this the last time we talked, the reason why SARS-CoV-2 has really brought the world to its knees is that it's a respiratory virus against which we were completely naive. This, the population, nobody in, in the world had immunity to SARS-CoV-2, and so it was able to spread very quickly. Um, I think uh, I used the analogy last time, which I think still applies of, uh, for example, with influenza, it's also a respiratory pathogen, it comes out every year, but we don't see this morbidity and mortality that we see with SARS-CoV-2, and that's because we're all exposed to influenza every year. And even though it may not be the same strain as was circulating last year, we still have some immunity to that prior strains. And so every individual who's either gotten vaccinated against influenza or has experienced influenza is a speed bump for the virus. Every one of us with our tiny bit of immunity is a speed bump. So the virus can't just spread like wildfire through like a dry grassland. But SARS-CoV-2 did exactly that because there were no speed bumps. Nobody had any immunity. So even people who are asymptomatic or had mild disease didn't have that immunity to stop the spread, right? The virus still went through them pretty quickly and they spread it pretty quickly to other people. And so it, it's just a very different circumstance. I mean, we're very fortunate that scary viruses like Ebola and Marburg are not respiratory and require extremely close contact with a symptomatic person for it to be transmitted. You know, during this past 13, 15 months, what did your lab work on? Yeah, so we worked on a variety of things. And all of our work was done in a huge collaborative setting. So this was probably the silver lining of this pandemic. Is I got to work with colleagues with whom I probably would have never had an opportunity to work with. Um, so I collaborated with wonderful faculty from the School of Nursing, for example, to do a study on healthcare workers and um, address the question of whether healthcare workers were at higher risk of contracting the disease than non-healthcare workers, for instance. Um, and I, under other circumstances, I probably would have never collaborated with um, Dr. Shin or Dr. Bender from the School of Nursing, because we, we live in very different stratospheres, we address different questions, but this pandemic brought us together for that. And then Dr. Shin and I used that as a leverage to now do a study on students on campus and look at durability of responses to SARS-CoV-2 versus vaccination in our undergraduate student population. Um, we Then we leverage that to work with um, other faculty members to look at immunity in transient communities and vaccine uptake in transient communities. Work with Dr. Bruckner to look at the role of passive surveillance in the community as a potential way to gauge uh, outbreaks that are smoldering and about to happen. And, and I would have never worked with any of these individuals had it not been for that. Um, this pandemic also brought together um, clinicians and basic scientists in a way that I had never seen happen at, on the UCI campus before. So I was fortunate enough to collaborate with people from internal medicine, from pathology. Uh, from pulmonology, critical care, again, in, in a way that we probably would not have done if it wasn't for the pandemic. So we've done a lot of work ranging from um, collaborating with outside scientists. So, uh, for example, my colleagues at Rocky Mountain Laboratories looking at 
um, immune responses in hamsters, which are a great animal model for SARS-CoV-2 infection, um, against the variants, uh, vaccine efficacy, community surveillance, to disease pathogenesis, to uh, you know the efficacy of vaccines in different age groups. So I've kind of run the whole gamut. Um, which has been really great. I think we're very fortunate uh, that my lab members really embraced this challenge and took it head on and came to work every day and helped uh, restart the level, uh, the biosafety level three laboratory, worked really tirelessly to process hundreds and hundreds of blood samples and do thousands of ELISAs to look for antibodies and Yes, it's been really rewarding and it's been really challenging and exhausting. <laughs> but, you know, looking back at this, I, I think that we've learned a lot about working together uh, in addition to learning a lot about this virus and in general, the immune system and, and virology. So I think it's, it's, been, it's been a trying time, but my hope is that we can now look back and grow from it and make sure that we're better prepared. And, that we take the positive aspects of the pandemic and carry those forward and help us grow as scientists, as human beings too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you feel like your students, it was an amazing growth time for them? Yes, absolutely. I think, I think they really got pushed in a way that they would have never, you know, from an intellectual standpoint and, and even sometimes physically, very long hours <laughs> in the lab in a way that probably they wouldn't have if it wasn't for the pandemic. I think... In, it, it's very lab dependent because of course there are many labs who had to shut down and for those individuals I worry about what happened to the students in terms of their growth trajectory over this year so I, I think it's it's kind of it's been a patchwork of who grew and learned and, and was able to push the boundaries during the pandemic and who unfortunately had to kind of step back and find other creative ways of staying engaged in their projects and in their science. How about in terms of health-wise for your lab? Did... No, none of us. So I think um, it's been great. We, we adopted asymptomatic testing before it was a cool thing to do. Um, in March, in mid-March, I still remember very distinctly, I told one of um, uh, our molecular biology guru in the lab, I said, let's order some, we need to, def we need to design and order primers, and we're going to do our own asymptomatic check. Um, on, on us basically and so we established the PCR test in our own lab before I would say yeah March 12th we ordered the primers we were up and running about a week later and we weekly tested ourselves until um, that became as an option on campus um, but you know that didn't happen until late last summer right so there were about six months when we were doing our own asymptomatic testing yeah. but none of us tested positive we we made a very um, strong commitment to each other and to our families that we were going to be very careful and we were going to be have a very balanced approach to this whole situation. Excellent. It, it just excuse me just for a moment, Professor, while I update our audience. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossemeyer, and my guest today is UCI viral immunologist, Professor Ilham Masoudi, and we're talking all about her lab's involvement with research on COVID-19 and, and what's been happening over the last 13 to 15 months. Did you have any high points or low points during the pandemic in your lab or just or just personally? 
I think we all had a lot of high points and a lot of low points this past year. Um, so I don't know if I shared this with you, but I am married to a pulmonologist critical care physician. Um, and so throughout this pandemic, it's, it's been really rough on both of us. Um, he's had some very rough weeks, um, emotionally draining weeks, lots of, um, you know, deaths and, and, and sadness in, in his in his day-to-day -day life. Um, for us, a lot of time without him at home. I have two young children, so this, this year has been really rough on them. They haven't seen their grandparents uh, for 15 months. Yeah, so I think, you know, some of the low points are just the, the, the inability to, to spend as much time with family and friends as, um, as we did before. Um, some of the high points, though, knowing that hopefully some of our work was informative. Um, we did do a couple of surveillance studies um, that did lead us to pre-warn people that they were in the asymptomatic phase of their infection. I think that was in some ways very uh, rewarding in some way to, you know, for somebody to be participating in the study and not suspecting that they were at risk, but then to find out, hey, you know, you should probably um, check some things, you know, check, you know, go get this checked out. So that was great. Um, we, we've learned a lot about this. I mean, our, my growth, my own personal growth curves in terms of what I understand about viral pathogenesis has tremendously increased um, and and you know while I did lose touch with a lot of friends and family members my lab members and I I think have grown closer to one another because we went through this pandemic working long hours side by side and um, so I think we've learned a lot more about each other and we've come to appreciate one another in a new way that I probably wouldn't have before pandemic so I think those relationships are deeper um, but yeah, so I think you know there's there's been a lot of uh, a lot of high points when we all got vaccinated. Very exciting, um, very exciting when we are able to check our own antibody titers and do our own uh, studies on our own blood. So that's really exciting. Those are one of the perks as a scientist that you you know that you get to do. So not only can we say yes, we got vaccinated, but we could also say we know exactly what our antibody response is. And wow, that's, that's great, you know. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, <laughs> not even an option for normal run-of-the-mill people. So, uh, but you know, at least uh, it, it definitely, I, I can I can tell that we, we all generated beautiful antibody responses. Yeah. So, uh, so you actually so could watch your antibodies. <laughs> exactly. That's amazing. I haven't yeah. so talked those, to anybody that said so that. Those, so those are the kind of the nerd things that we get yeah. to do, right? <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Do the antibodies continue to increase? You they, know, they do plateau. So. Uh, you make a, an initial response after the first dose, and it yeah. does, for, for those of us who are naive, who had not had COVID, um, that response gets bigger after the second dose, and then it plateaus, and then it's slowly starting to decline now, but very slowly. For you guys? For all, yeah, for yeah, for, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the big question now: yeah. how long yeah. will the vaccine? And we will still we we're, we're our own little experiment, right? Yeah. We're all learning, but I mean, there's some a uh, couple of nice studies that have come out recently that show that antibody response are pretty good five months into it right so we've had a lot of people vaccinated around Christmas time when the vaccines became available um, so we, we have a general idea that the, these responses are not falling off the curve right uh -huh. that we, we have uh, they, they seem to be pretty durable well, let's keep our fingers crossed <laughs> so you, you don't have any sense of if and when a booster will be needed yeah, not yet we don't know not yet so it may be that we won't need a booster or no, we 
you have a sense of that? Yeah, so it's a, it's an interesting question. It all depends on whether SARS-CoV-2 remains to kind of circulate, right? If it becomes part of just the pathogen landscape, right? Every year, influenza virus circulates. Every year, like most, you know, a lot of respiratory viruses come back, the rhinoviruses, the adenoviruses, right? They, and who knows if SARS-CoV-2 will be part of this landscape, in which case you could envision multiple scenarios. One is that we will need yearly boosters. Two is now we have enough immunity that if we got exposed, we would not have disease, but our immune system would get a natural booster. So this happens with a lot of other viruses. For example, we know like chickenpox back in the day when we didn't vaccinate kids against chickenpox, the adults were actually getting boosted. Every time their own kid would get chickenpox, they wouldn't get chickenpox again, but their T-cell responses and antibody responses actually get naturally boosted. Um, so there's lots of evidence and lots of examples already in the world where um, we have enough immunity that you no longer have disease, but your immune system gets tickled in some way and can then enhance those responses. Um, so one, we, we, could, we could be needing boosters. We could now get enough natural boosting that would be okay. Um, I guess there is this potential scenario, even though I don't think it's likely that SARS-CoV-2 will not find an, a natural animal reservoir and persist and go away. But, you know, I mean, it's still the possibility. I think it's remote, but, you know, we can't take anything off the table right now. It's possible that it, um, some of these variants will evolve to become strains of their own, and then we may need vaccines against them as they become, you know, officially strains. Right now, even though the ability of antibodies that are made by the current vaccines to neutralize the variants of concern is a little bit lower, they're still, they're still active against these variants. But, you know, there's always that possibility that a new variant will be so far off from this mRNA vaccine that we will need a new vaccine for that particular variant or potentially strengthen it. It really diverges enough that it causes a new, a new disease. Any particular lessons for the future or, you know, for you that you think are very important for us to, you know, these were big lessons that we Yeah, heard. I mean, there's a lot, I think. Um, one is, in science, we must believe. <laughs> Two, um, if we have an emergence of a new, you know, pathogen like SARS-CoV-2, we really have to stay ahead of the curve in terms of surveillance. Um, we cannot underestimate um, asymptomatic shedding or asymptomatic spread so we really have to stay ahead of surveillance um, have mitigation strategies on hand that we've learned from this that we can deploy really quickly um, have regular contacts and and um, explanations provided to the public so that we build trust in a way that we really I think didn't over this last pandemic there's a lot of misinformation out there there was a lot of mistrust there was um, a lot of yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what the right word is, but yeah, I think we could have done a better job of just, you know, clearly speaking to the public as scientists. And this is I'm just speaking for scientists of um, clearly stating what we know, what we don't know, what we're hoping to learn, and then updating the public as we speak and and trying to um, be proactive about vigilance and, and informing people and explaining why we're doing certain things and explaining why things have changed. So for example, you know, when we went from 
okay, you could just stay six feet apart, it's okay, oh no, you know what, you, you should really be masked and this. Just doing a better job of explaining why we need to do that, why, why, you know, what have we learned now that tells us that this is now an additional thing that we need, um, an additional you know, strategy that we need to deploy. Um, and I, I think we learned that communication is key and we need to stay ahead of the curve and we need to do a better job of that. So that would be my, my biggest lesson. Um, the other thing that I that I would love to see happen differently next year is, um, while I understand that we needed to reduce density um, because we knew that this was a respiratory pathogen, therefore it spread by close contact and dense, dense areas, I think to me the saddest thing from this pandemic is seeing how deserted university campuses had begun. Um, I think it would be really great if we mobilized the scientific force instead of sending most of it home, right? Um, there's lots of people who are not virologists who, uh, but who could have contributed in some ways um, by using that lab space to either turn it into testing laboratories or giving them the, a, a chance to develop, think outside the box for, for diagnostics or um, other ideas, but but even if you're not in SARS-CoV-2, you don't know what to do. Being able to mobilize scientists to then work with the scientists who are virologists, for example, or let's say we have a bacterial pathogen that causes the next <laughs> pandemic, working with those experts um, to make sure that we don't we don't send our most creative and applicable workforce home. <laughs> um, so hopefully, you know. The next time we, we will have different strategies of mobilizing at least the scientific force in a different way, um, while, while keeping safety in mind. But I think you know balancing those two things would be would be critical. Any predictions for the next five to ten years? I mean, is, is that you know is that just like a needle in a haystack? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, if you asked me five years ago if I thought there was going to be a global pandemic that brought the world to its knees, I probably wouldn't have, um, you know, guessed, guessed the severity or the extent to which um, uh, this happened. It's amazing but, how it it just came upon us as a... It just kind of melted into our society and brought us to our knees and it seems to be melting away the same you know there's a heck of a lot of work that went into it but it's like oh my gosh there's people you know yeah. <laughs> in, on campus now and there's people at the restaurants and it's it's just amazing well i mean if you look at the rapidity with which the last surge that we went through came down you can trace it very clearly to the introduction of vaccination yeah, right <laughs> I mean, so i think if there's one thing we learned is that again in science we must trust and in vaccines we must trust when it comes to infectious diseases um, a vaccine will always be a million times better than any therapeutic or drug because if you prevent infection then you prevent spread then you prevent outbreaks and um, so I think there's also lessons to be drawn from the sense of we should be very vigilant about surveilling for these zoonotic diseases Climate change is real. <laughs> we, as humans, um, the growth of the human population is leading to us encroaching into territories that we did not before. So there's gonna be the spillover events, these you know spillover events like where a, a, an, you know a virus or a pathogen that used to live in an animal reservoir is spilling over into humans. Those events will occur more rapidly. 
this past February, we had two Ebola outbreaks in Guinea and the Democratic Republic of Congo in the middle of, a, you know, of COVID-19. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the other viruses have not taken a break, by the way. <laughs> um, but my, my, the point that I'm trying to make is these, these um, spillover events will continue to occur. They will accelerate. It, it would be foolish of us to not think that that will continue to happen. We need to be vigilant. We need to prepare the next generation of microbiologists and virologists to go out there. We need to train them. We need to be um, actively looking for these um, zoonotic and, and uh, pathogens. Uh, we need to be tracking them. We need to be preparing um, our science workforce for rapid um, adaptations of technology for vaccinations as well as therapeutics and, and um, you know other other methods to combat the, the disease once it occurs. So both we need to be on the prophylaxis side but also on the post-exposure side of, of, uh, of vaccine and drug development. Uh, and we need to train people. We need to train more people in, in, in infectious diseases and microbiology and virology and immunology, right? Um, so hopefully this was a big wake-up call for, for those fields. When we just were hearing the rumors and the potential for COVID-19, I think many of us thought, oh, well, they've succeeded in fighting these other really bad things that came along, Ebola and so forth. But then that didn't happen. How did we stop Ebola? Or I guess it, yeah. it seems like just a, such a... How did they stop it? So one thing is we now have an FDA-approved vaccine against Ebola. Oh, okay. <laughs> in a platform that is easily adaptable to tons of other viruses. But my the point that I was going to make is that Ebola requires close contact with a symptomatic person, and it's not spread via the respiratory route, <laughs> which just makes it less able to spread through people the way that SARS-CoV-2 has. So right. it's not as contagious. You have to care for an Ebola patient to get Ebola. You have to come into close contact with somebody who is displaying symptoms of the disease. Gotcha. Um, and so that the, the then the playing field is completely different. Gotcha. In terms of your research, have you been? Are you ever scared in your research? Like, man, I'm dealing with some really bad stuff, and I'm in the middle of it. I mean, is it like that or not? No, not really. I have to say that not only in science I believe, in vaccines I believe, but also in PPE I believe. So in prote personal protective equipment I believe. Um, it, nothing is fail. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Nothing, nothing is certain in life, right? 100%. But, but, but I, I'm, I feel pretty good about where we are. Um, it's, it's interesting you should ask that question because I got that question a lot. Um, with people asking me, um, if I was going to let my husband come home, given who, what he was doing for a living, right? He was intubating yep. patients with COVID-19. You know, oh my gosh, you're letting him come home and see you and the kids? You're going to get infected. And I said, no, in PPE, I believe. My husband is gowned in a spacesuit when he does high-risk pr procedures. And I believe in the protective personal equipment that he has. And so, you know, in my risk-benefit analysis. <laughs> um, I was not going to have him sleep in a trailer outside <laughs> in, the, in the driveway. He was going to come home, and I think it was very important that, you know, we see each other as much as we could, given the circumstances as a family. But, yeah, so, of course, I have, I have a very deep respect for these pathogens. Um, do not um, mistake what I'm saying for me being light, 
you know, lighthearted about it. I definitely have a very profound and deep respect for the pathogens, but I also have a deep and profound respect and, and belief in, in what we do as scientists and, and what we have at our hands. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're just joining us, you're listening to UCI Conversations on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI viral immunologist Ilham Masoudi. We've been talking all about the pandemic, the kinds of work her lab was performing trying to stem the tide, and where we are currently with the vaccine and COVID-19. Now we switch gears and talk about some big news for Professor Masoudi. Here we go. Professor, you've been at UCI since 2017, is that yep, right? Yeah, I arrived in January 2017. So, was it four years you've been here? Four Almost years? five, yeah, Almost four five. and a half years. When you came here, did you have goals that you, what was it that you wanted to accomplish? Was it like that? Um, or they yeah. told you what to do? <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, I, I was really um, excited when I arrived um, at UCI. I was excited when I got the call that I um, did get the job. I came to UCI to grow my research program and to participate in educating the future generation of scientists. And I definitely, like everyone else probably, have aspiration of leadership and taking a bigger role, a bigger initiative. And I think this pandemic has allowed me to step up and do some of that. It definitely revealed to me that um, I guess my aspiration for academic leadership are very strong. And um, it's a side of, of me that now I'm really looking forward to grow and nurture. Great. So, why don't we just transition now? You <laughs> recently made a big decision. What's going on for you? Yeah, so I will be uh, moving to the University of Kentucky, uh, Lexington, at the end of this fall quarter to become the, the chair of microbiology, immunology, and molecular genetics in the College of Medicine at the University of Kentucky. I am very excited, of course, about this opportunity because I will get to now um, lead and grow a program that is focused on infectious diseases, immunology, host pathogen interaction, uh, virology, and um, yeah, that's that's always been my dream. So I'm very excited about this opportunity. Wow! Did it come about all of a sudden that you had the opportunity? Was it along in the works, or how did it come about? <laughs> so I've um, I've always always had this interest in, in, in becoming an academic um, leader, becoming a chair of a department. Um, actually, my dream job is to be a vice president of research one day. I really believe in what we do as scientists, and I want to be an active participant in growing that and training the next generation. So I've always had my eye out for these opportunities. Um, and this, this year, it's been um, a little challenge. So my husband is, um, in addition to being a physician, he's also a U.S. Navy officer. And his time with the Navy was, is coming to a close. Um, and so it was an opportunity for us to think about what we wanted to do next. And, um, and so part of the challenge when you're, uh, so some people call this a, a two-body problem. I call it a two-body solution. <laughs> uh, but, you know, finding jobs for two people who are engaged in an academic career is always um, challenging. Um, and so we, we, bo we both needed to find a place where we could both grow. Um, he's, he's very interested in graduate medical education in addition to his clinical duties. And um, I'm interested in growing the next generation and growing a, a very strong program in infectious diseases. And, um, and so we, we had to find a place that could support both of us at the same time. And um, at the University of Kentucky, just 
uh, came up with it just was an opportunity for me to be chair, which is you know, just those those things, those opportunities don't come around very often. And they had a very uh, a position for my husband that was very much aligned with his aspirations as well. And so um, it was kind of like a you know we thought about it very long and hard because I really did. I, like, I do love my time, I mean, I loved my time here at UCI, and my research program has blossomed. I've made some uh, great friendships that um, I hope will continue even after I move. Um, I've gotten recently the opportunity to um, be part of uh, the, the leadership for the Center for Virus Research. Um, so it's, it's these, these last four and a half years have been just an exponential growth period for me. So course this is you know kind of like a bittersweet moment because I really enjoyed my time here and I loved it um, but it was also time for me to take on this new responsibility that was not available here at UCI um, so yeah <laughs> yeah that's fantastic were there any particular mentors that you had here at UCI or people that you particularly just loved working with oh my gosh yeah so many <laughs> So I came to UCI um, on the advice of Dr. Buckmeyer, <laughs> who I think was was one of the people you interviewed. He's right. one of the virologists here at UCI. He's been. He told me to interview you too. <laughs> <laughs> He's been my one of my mentors for many years, and um, he invited me to give a seminar here uh, while I was at UC Riverside, which kind of really planted the seed for my interest in joining UCI. Um, Dr. Bert Semler has also been a, a great mentor and a great support um, over years, um, and uh, many, many colleagues at Molecular Biology and Biochemistry. Um, Dr. Lodowin is someone who I'm going to miss tremendously. She's a great fellow immunologist and a collaborator. Um, Dr. Eric Perlman, um, who's the director for the Institute for Immunology, is someone I'm going to also miss tremendously. Um, I've gotten to know Dr. Dan Cooper, who is the director of our you know, Institute for Clinical and Translational Science this year. Um, and I really wish I had gotten to know him better earlier. <laughs> um, but he's he's been a great mentor, and and so many more um, colleagues that I can't you know I can't name them all. But um, yeah, it's it's been it's, it's been a really great ride. <laughs> great, great. Will you? continue to teach in your new position or is I will it? yes oh, yes okay. so I will be taking on the virology course uh, for undergraduates and graduate students <laughs> at the University of Kentucky so I'm excited about that um, and I will also get to teach immunology uh, both at the undergraduate and graduate level is it can you predict like certainly in the last 20 years our uh, our knowledge of the human body and, and technology has allowed us to go. I don't know. Could you have dreamed 20 years ago we'd be where we're at today? You know, do you think the trajectory is still going to be, continue to be steep? I, I do. I think the pace and um, so, you know, I, I got my PhD in 1996. And over those past, what, 24 years now? Almost 24, yeah, I'm like, I can't even, I've lost track. But you don't it's look just that been old. one, it's, it's been, it's just been one massive discovery after another. It's just been a great, for me, it's been a great time to be a scientist. I really, 
um, every time I'm, I think, okay, we've, we've really exhausted this. We we're not going to, something else comes around. Like now we can do amazing genomics at the single cell level. We have amazing microscopy single cell level. We have tools to manipulate organisms in ways that we, we hadn't anticipated before. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I remember when I started graduate school, it was this, dream this pie in the sky of you know the whole genome sequencing the human genome sequencing project was underway it's like rooms full of sequences upon sequencers and now you can just, just you can do whole genome sequencing in one run it's amazing right um i started off as an immunology and early on i think you know at the end yeah at the end of my my phd the um, crystal structures of the t-cell receptor came about and I just I feel like every step of the way it's just been one amazing discovery after another. So I think yeah I think we're poised to just continue to to be on this trajectory for many many years to come. And it's hard to say exactly where that will go. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, my own science has taken so many twists and turns. Um, I don't think that if you asked me in 2008 when I started my lab, um, I started my lab in October 2008, and if somebody had asked me back then what I would be studying 20 years later. I don't think I would have come up with with, with what I do now. <laughs> wow. So, and you, so you will be here in the, in the fall? I the will, fall yes, yes. Gotcha. And when do you start in Kentucky? Um, so somewhere towards the end, you know, in December-ish, uh, around, you know, kind of, it's, it's a little bit, but definitely by January, I will be assuming my chair duties and um, embarking on that next journey. Well, Professor Ilan Masali, thank you so much for your time. We wish you all the best. We are going to miss you. I know you will be missed here. Congratulations. Well, thank, you. thank you very much. <laughs> thank you again to UCI viral immunologist, Professor Ilan Masali, for all her work and all her lab's work on COVID-19. It's been a year like no other in all our memories. And as Professor Masali so honestly states, in science we trust. Bravo, bravo. Thank you, scientists, for the vaccines. Outstanding job. We also enthusiastically wish Dr. Masaudi bon voyage and the very best in her new position as Department Chair of Microbiology, Immunology, and Molecular Genetics in the College of Medicine at the University of Kentucky, which she will assume after the fall semester here. The land of bluegrass is lucky, very lucky to have her, she will be a great mentor. Now coming up next at the top of the hour is Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra, the show that is always good for shining a light on business solutions to frequent business problems. Stay tuned. As always, thank you to the piano man, Fred Kaplan, for all my show theme music from his terrific CD, Signifying. It's a goodie. This edition of UCI Conversations and my show archive is available 24-7 at www.bossenmeyer.com. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Next week, my guest will be new UCI Provost and Executive Vice Chancellor Hal Stern in a revealing feature interview exclusively on KUCI. I'm your host, Kevin Bostonmeyer, wishing you a very pleasant good evening and encouraging everyone to get vaccinated. Herd immunity is on its way if everyone gets vaccinated. 
Keep working hard, and we will see you next week. So long, everybody. Happy trails.